Well, good morning, Redeemer. So glad that you're here today to worship the risen Christ together with his people. We're working through the story of the church after Christ's resurrection, after his ascension, after the pouring out of his spirit as kept for us in the book of Acts. It's the story of the church. It's the story of Jesus' continued works after his ascension through his people, by his spirit, people like us. And now we come to a key turn in the story in which God's love, which is always on the move, always at work through his gospel and his spirit, is poured out in a very unique place uh, around a death, around a martyr's death. Stephen, the first Christian martyr. We pick up his story midway through chapter 6 and 7. We'll begin reading in chapter 7, verse 44. Here is love even in death. Stephen is preaching and giving testimony before the council, and he states, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Oh God, Father, Son, and Spirit, You are love. Oh Lord, we are always and forever in need of experiencing Your love, knowing more of Your love. May we know it, Father, even here, right now, around this story kept for us, Holy Spirit, by You, of the death of Your servant, Stephen, Jesus. 
even as we especially know it around your death, O Christ. May we find your unique, saving love this morning, even around this martyr's death, and carry the expectation, even the taste of that love, into our own stories, O Lord, as we are called to die together with You, Jesus, to die daily, to pick up our crosses and follow You. May we know this love, O Lord. May we be changed and the world around us be changed. We pray it all, Lord Jesus, for Your name's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I met my son up in Arlington. We watched some baseball games this week, and so I drove through Austin on the way, that place where we planted a church in 1994 and lived 10 years of our life. And it made me think about all the friends that, um, that I've had across the years in Austin. And one of them, I'll just call her Betty, um, was a friend that I got to know. She was living on the street when we met her, and we began to try to interact with her as a church and help her. And she sort of spent the 10 years that we were there off and on in and out of the street and in and out of various apartments. She had two wonderful sons, and they were her hope and her joy. And, and Betty was an amazing Christian. She really was. She had uh, some real addictions, some real problems that grabbed hold of her and um, wreaked a lot of destruction on her life, especially physically. And so about six months before she died, Betty came to this excruciating conclusion um, that, that the best way that I can love my boys, who truly are the greatest blessing in my life, other than Jesus himself, is to give them away, is to help them find another home. And we had some families that came around her, and her two sons were able to be adopted into uh, a Christian home, and, and it was both really sad and crushing, but beautiful. A year later, Betty died succumbing to liver failure, and uh, I had the privilege to preach her funeral. And I said then, those many years ago, um, you know, um, what I would say now, you know, 20 years since, I said this, I would say it again today, is that Betty's greatest moment of discipleship her greatest expression of love was in giving her boys away. That's strange space to find love, isn't it? It, it can be strange when we're finding love in odd places. You know, I uh, maybe you've taken in Oppenheimer, maybe you've taken in Barbie. That's another conversation this weekend, but maybe you've taken in Oppenheimer. I haven't gotten to see it yet, but I want to. I love World War II movies and um um, one of my favorites is kind of an underdog that doesn't get talked about much. It's Allied, Brad Pitt, Marion Cotillard. And at the end of that film, there's, there's this, this amazing gift of love that the Marion Cotillard character gives to Brad Pitt and their sheer daughter that allows them to escape the ravages of war and to even find themselves after the war in North America on a ranch, which they'd always dreamed of doing together in Alberta, Canada. Uh, unique love, love in strange packaging, love in a strange place, love even around and inside of death, right? That's where we find ourselves today. This is a story of death and not just right any death. This is a martyr's 
death. This is a strange space to find the love of God active and moving, but we've got to find it here, right? Because we're all going to face death ourselves if Jesus tarries until we die. Perhaps He'll come back again before then. But for the vast majority of humanity and the vast majority of the followers of Christ, we're going to die. And we're going to have to deal with love around death. Or certainly people that we love and care for are going to die and be taken from us. Where is the love of God there? Tim Keller wrote an amazing piece. It was published in The Atlantic uh, called Growing Faith in the Face of Death. He wrote that just about three years ago when he was first diagnosed with what eventually took him several months ago, pancreatic cancer. And, um, and he wrote this piece, and, and he just talks about how death is, is uniquely this space that is, that is going to be polarizing in your life. It has this strong polarity to it one way or the other. It's either going to push you away from God. And he writes, you know, in this piece about a woman who said, Pastor, I cannot believe in God anymore. God has put cancer into my life. And if he would do a thing like that, I cannot trust him. He cannot be there for me. Death can do that to you. Just push you far away from God. Or it can be a space that uniquely draws you toward God. And Keller just writes about how his faith just grew in this space. There's a quote we have in the front of the bulletin there where he talks about, ultimately, I believe the resurrection more than I ever had, that because Christ went all the way through death and out the other side, I know that I will rise with him on the other side of death. We've got to have... God's love in and around death. This is a story of how we can experience that. As we read about, as we ponder, as we sort of are invited in to Stephen's death, how can we know God's love and take it with us on our journey? Think about you know three key ways here. You see God's love active in and around this martyr's death. First of all, there is... God's love that is active here in terms of His clarity. God's love of clarity. Let's go back to our story. What's happening here? And if you can take time this afternoon or in the week that's ahead to read through this whole section of Acts 6 and 7, what do we know about Stephen, right? We met him last week together here. He's one of these first deacons that God calls. He's one called to, to press the gospel out indeed, but he's also quite a powerful preacher of the gospel. And he begins to minister in and around Jerusalem, professing Christ, uh, pressing Christ up against the claims of those who would stand against him. God even works miracles through Stephen. He's this person uniquely filled with God's Spirit. And signs and wonders are coming from Stephen. And so it's interesting, some of these Hellenist people, these same Hellenist people that had complained before, different groups of them don't like Stephen. And, uh, and, and, and they begin to put false charges up against him, not Hellenist inside the church, sort of Greek-speaking Jews more broadly. And they accuse Stephen of several things, right? Blaspheming against God, saying that the temple is not special to God, and denying God's law. And Stephen's not guilty of any of these things, right? 
but they falsely accuse him. And so he's brought here before the council. And we sort of pick up his speech before the council in the middle. And he, he says, look, you know, God's been working among our fathers across the ages. Think of how he worked with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of Jacob's sons. Think about Joseph and how God spoke of the uniqueness of Joseph's place, even through dreams Joseph was given as a very young person. And yet our fathers, the heads of our tribes, hated him. Hated that grace expressed through Joseph. Tried at first to kill him, tossed him then in a pit and sold him into slavery in Egypt. God worked uniquely through that. But the brothers, our, our patriarchal heads, the heads of our tribes, they despised the grace offered there through Joseph. Think about in Moses' time, he says. You know, here's Moses leading us all out of the land of Egypt. God works miraculously, passes over us and brings us out while death is descending on the land. And immediately afterward, we are given over to idolatry, our fathers were, Stephen says. And wanting to worship other gods, wanting to go back to Egypt, saying, where is our God? Stunning their rejection. And yet, those are our fathers. And that's what they did. In the time of David and the kings, they rejected God's grace again and again. Prophets came to them over and over, and they denied and rejected the grace of God. But Stephen is saying, now we're really the worst. You're the worst, he says. Because here is what it was all pointing to. The coming of the promised one. The coming of the Christ and you have rejected him and murdered him. You stubborn and stiff-necked people, you were just like all of our fathers, and even worse, you have put to death the Holy One of God. He's telling it straight, right? He's giving them clarity. There is this beautiful clarity of him pressing the gospel as he is on trial. He's really preaching to them and cutting them down to the bone. You know, Hebrews talks about the word of God being powerful and active like a sword cutting to the very bone and marrow of our being. That's what Stephen's defense is really his preaching is doing. And what do they do with it? They reject it. They gnash their teeth on it. They're enraged and they rush out after him. Clarity is only a blessing to us, coming to us in all kinds of spaces if we are willing to accept it as a grace, as a grace, as a gift that we are far more sinful than we have ever really even realized. But there is a grace and a love and a hope for us as there was there for Joseph and his brothers, right? As there was in all these other spaces. There is now for us a fullness of God's grace. We are the ones who put Jesus to death. But it is for us that Jesus died. The clarity can bring blessing if we will receive it with humility and grace. Um, I did this program last summer. I need to start it again. I am in a bad way with my physical fitness and kind of body shape, and I, I'm in a bad place. But last summer, I did this program called 75 Hard. 
And it's 75 days of intentional exercise and eating and even mental development and spend time reading and all these things. It, it was this amazing program, and I saw it all the way through. It, you know, the hardest thing about it, you have to do these workouts and drink a gallon of water every day. It was really hard. But you know what the hardest thing was? You had to take a picture of yourself every day with your shirt off. For men, I guess for women, you know, you're wearing your sports bra or whatever. I hated that worse than anything else. Because every day you had to see, okay, this is what I really look like. This is where it really is. This is why I need help and grace in this space. Clarity is only beautiful and helpful if we will accept it. You know, Fran's favorite show in, in L.A. in our three years out there was, uh, was Shark Tank. And a lot of times we just sit there in the evenings and kind of watch Shark Tank. She's moved on to some other things now. She loves Survivor now, but she loves Shark Tank. And we would just watch Shark Tank. And I saw this episode twice there in those couple of years. And it was of this woman selling this idea. She called it the skinny mirror. And she wanted to sell it to department stores and boutiques. Maybe you've seen this episode. And it was a mirror, you know, sort of the opposite of the funhouse mirrors, you know, that make you look, you know, just wide and goofy. It was a mirror that made you look incredibly skinny no matter what. And she said, you know, women deserve to see themselves in a mirror and look skinny. And I want to give that to them. And, but the sharks would go, what, but you know, that's not real. Yes, but we deserve to see ourselves this way. Interestingly, none of the sharks wanted to partner with her to make this deal. What we need is the mirror. Just remember God's word gives you these pictures in the stories of His grace, you see through and see the wonders of the work of redemptive history. You know, it's, it's a window to see the wonders. But, but, you know, God's Word is always a mirror held up to us to say, Paul, you're the man. You're just like these people around Stephen. You, you are functionally the one who put Christ to death. You've rejected God's grace in all these spaces. Will you humble yourself before this clarity and run to him begging his forgiveness? Fresh mercy, fresh grace. You know, Martin Luther famously said, if you want to be a painted sinner, you know, just sort of a nice, prettied up, pretend sinner, then all you can have is a painted Savior. But if you want a real Jesus, a real Savior, then you have to see yourself as a real sinner. We need this clarity here around this martyr's death. God's love is coming to you even this morning. The stuff we did around confession, it's not just road, it's not just something we do every Sunday to take up time before we get to the sermon, right? It is the most significant thing we do in worship every week is together, collectively say, I'm a sinner. I'm in desperate need of grace. And to run to Jesus again. I love what N.T. Wright says, you know, the Anglican bishop. He says, you know, the world should see about the church that the church is this place that is best described as prodigals running back and receiving the loving welcome of their father. But you can't be that kind of church if it doesn't start with us in the far country admitting our need afresh. 
There's the clarity of God's love here around this martyr's death. Embrace that. Receive it. Let it be a blessing to you. Secondly, there is the love of God here on display around affliction, around pain, around suffering. Again, strange packaging. Strange work of God here. Here's Stephen, falsely accused, put on trial. It reminds you of Jesus, right? Falsely accused, put on trial. The trials are mockeries here. Stephen's trial, really a mockery. Everything he says is true, and yet they, they, are, they are committed to putting him to death, right? All of this suffering on Stephen, and the text talks about at the end of chapter 6, his face is shining like that of an angel. As they are throwing the stones at him, the text says that Stephen sees the heavens opened and Christ standing at the right hand of God shining upon him, blessing him with his presence. There is, you just, you have to get this as a Christian. You know, if I, there are these things I always say, you just remember one thing today. Just remember this. There's a unique, mysterious, yet true, inexplicable, yet true reality that in your deepest sufferings and afflictions, even when you are falsely accused and abandoned, persecuted even. There's a unique fellowship of Jesus there. You can see him there, and his love is poured out to you there. How are we changed as Christians? How do we become more like Jesus? Paul says it's just like Moses of old when he would commune with God and he would see God's face and his face would begin to shine. Well, Stephen is showing you here the space where you uniquely see God, where the heavens, as it were, are opened right for us is when we are uniquely suffering afflictions together in the name of Jesus. What does Paul say? These light and momentary sufferings we endure are creating in us a weight of glory that will last into eternity. When do we shine? When are we uniquely becoming most like Jesus? When His love is poured out to us in our afflictions. It means also that in those spaces, that love flows through us. Others can see that. I love what John Piper writes about in his great old work on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, the Sovereignty of God, the Supremacy of God in Missions. And uh, he just writes about uh, this vignette. I read it again this past week. It moved me to tears as I read it, that uh, this, this, this native indigenous person in interior of India had become a Christian, and he decided just that God was calling him to be an evangelist, and he walked barefooted from village to village to village in the hopes that he could tell them about Jesus. And he comes into one village after a very long walk and journey, and, and they reject him, and they do not even allow him inside the village and to speak anything about Jesus. So he is dejected and goes and lies down, weeping, you know, under a tree outside the village. And he falls asleep and he wakes up with the entire village surrounding him and looking at him. 
and saying to him, we want to invite you back into the village. We want to hear about this Jesus. And he says, why? What's occurred? And they said, we see the blisters on your feet. We see what you have suffered to come to us and come to others with this message. And we want to hear. When we are suffering and yet holding tightly to Jesus, it can be direct persecutions or indirect spaces of suffering, just journeying as a Christian. When we do this and we hold on to Jesus and we prize Jesus in those spaces and when our faces, as it were, are glowing with uniquely seeing Jesus and experiencing Him in these spaces, we are showing that there really is a pearl of great price. There really is a treasure to be had above all others in having Jesus. There's a unique love in these afflictions for us and through us for the sake of others. God's love is there uniquely with clarity in the middle of afflictions. And lastly, and maybe most significantly, through forgiveness. Where does this story end? With Jesus, with, with Jesus, you know, pouring out this grace to Stephen and Stephen falling down on his knees as he is being stoned to death. And what are his last words after he, like Jesus, gives up his spirit over to the Lord, right? In this martyr's death. He's on his knees and what are his last words? Like his Lord, Father, forgive them. Like Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, may your forgiveness be on them. Forgiveness is always in a sense, even if it's your best friend or it's toward your spouse or toward one of your children or toward your parents or to anyone in this congregation, there's a sense in which forgiveness is always given to an enemy in that moment. What happens when you need to forgive somebody is they have treated you as though they were their enemy, right? As though they hate you. And you are functionally forgiving an enemy there. But here is Stephen with these people raging against him, gnashing their teeth when he is only giving them God's clarity, when he is only pointing them to the death of Christ themselves. Right? They're raging and hurling stones at him. Father, forgive them. He is forgiving his enemies. And when we do that, that's when the gospel really sings. Because it's what we need from God ourselves over and over and over. When I sin against God, when I trade him out for lesser gods, when I love his gifts rather than the giver, when I believe that my lusts or my comforts or my greed or my jealousy is more significant and more life-giving than the Lord of life himself, I am acting like I'm still his enemy rather than his friend, rather than his child, rather than his son. And I need that forgiveness. 
And when I forgive those who are acting as my enemies, the gospel comes alive. The gospel sings. You know, I, uh, the British Open's going on right now. Don't tell me who's winning it afterward. Please don't shake my hand afterwards and tell me you won the British Open. I'm going to try to watch that later today. Um, golf tournament, the last major of the year. But it reminds me of uh, Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy, two of the great golfers, along with Colin Morikawa, who's won two major tournaments himself, great young golfer. They're on the tee, and they're trialing the, trying out the tailor-made new driver, right? And, and, and they talk about, this has forgiveness. <laughs> forgiveness. What they're talking about is the club itself is forgiving. You don't have to hit it on the dead center, that you can hit it on different parts of the club head face, and it still goes far. This club's about forgiveness, and the whole thing is about, are you saying forgiveness? No, forgiveness. It's, just, it's kind of a crummy commercial. But when we forgive, in Jesus' name, as the Father forgives us in Jesus' name, the gospel goes far. It moves, it powers out. I was at lunch yesterday with Fran and, and my son Jim, and, and um, I was just reminded of Fran's favorite person, really, that she most wants to meet when she gets to heaven is Corey Ten Boom, the person whose family um, in the Netherlands um, kept Jewish people in their homes secretly and they were discovered for doing so during the Nazi regime and and not only were those people taken away but they themselves were taken away split up as a family and taken into concentration camps and and uh, Corey and her sister Betsy have to go through this journey together it's unspeakable and horrible and Betsy dies in that concentration camp and Corey lives and lives through it and is delivered and rescued as allies come and uh, she talks about going back to Munich and speaking. She'd gone home to the Netherlands. This is 1947. This is just two years after the war has ended. And she's been invited into Munich. And she speaks about the forgiveness of Jesus and talks about how Christ has forgiven her and that when our sins are forgiven, as it were, they are in the bottom of the sea. They are as far away from us as east is from west. And she finishes her talk. And up, up walks this man, immediately she recognizes him as one of the guards from Raisin, Ravensbrook, the prison where she was held. And, and she just, you know, she, all of the PTSD is just flooding in and raging. And he comes up to her, he does not recognize her. But, you know, he said, Fraulein, what a story you have told. What a message of forgiveness you talked about Ravensbrook. I was a guard at Ravensbrook. And she looks away and she said, I fiddled in my purse. I could not look at this. She said, Fraulein, since I have become a Christian and this message you've preached, I need it so. I need it so, Fraulein, I need to hear you say it. Brother, I forgive you. This is a guard who would make Corey and Betsy and others, women, walk before him and with unspeakable atrocities done to them and around them and leer at them. And, and she said, I can't do it, Lord. She said, I cannot do it. And that Jesus spoke the gospel afresh to her and just urged her, just put out your hand. Just put out your hand. And she touches his hand. And she said, it was though there was this flow of electric current through me and I was able to finally say, brother, I forgive you. 
even as Jesus forgives you. And she said, I've never felt more alive and more of the love of Jesus in my life than in that moment. And then she goes on and says, you would think after that, after God moved in me to help me forgive that, that I would be wonderful at forgiving everyone. And she talks about all the petty little ways that in the years since she struggles with forgiveness. And she said, each day, I have to draw down new mercies from the Lord to forgive others as He has forgiven me. May we around this death, around this unique grace of drawing down grace that Stephen does to forgive these enemies raging at him, literally killing him, may we find the grace to forgive as Jesus forgives us. And may the gospel go far. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this unique love around death. It reminds us of the death that had to be given for us, Jesus, the death that had to be given to make us who are your enemies, naturally your friends. Thank you for that love, O oh Lord. May that love not let us go. May that, may that love come to us and, and give us clarity that we are still desperate sinners in need of your grace. Again and again and again. May that love come to us and remind us that in our afflictions and in our sufferings, there is unique connection with you. And even as we prize you there, there is the love and wonder of the gospel flowing through us uniquely even as we're hearing Stephen's story, and even as we're learning about his prizing of you in these afflictions, Lord, there is the power of the gospel flowing. And Lord, help us realize that it is all about forgiveness. It is the greatest of your benefits to us. It is the greatest of benefits we can show others. And now, Lord, as we come to this meal that feeds on your forgiving love, may we become like what we eat. Please, Lord, we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.